Welcome to the Leading Real Change podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jacqueline Kerr, an expert in workplace culture change. From my unique background in behavior science, public health, and community advocacy, I help corporate leaders with evidence-based individual team and organizational change to create thriving workplace cultures for all. In the Leading Real Change podcast, I interview dedicated and passionate change makers about their careers, how they lead change, and what leaders can do today to make a difference, to build healthy, inclusive workplace cultures for all. I'm excited to share these examples of real workplace change with you. You'll learn about effective strategies that are working and how to overcome real barriers to change that challenge us every day. I hope you'll feel inspired and more confident to keep leading change in your workplace. Please share this podcast with other HR, DEI or ERG leaders who you know are working hard but are struggling to have an impact and need more support to effectively create a thriving workplace culture for all today. I am Kim Scott, and I live in Silicon Valley with my husband and my twins, who are 14. And I started my career early on. I did a failed startup. I started a software company, which failed. And then I joined Google, and that worked out much better. At Google, I led AdSense, YouTube, and DoubleClick sales and operations. And then I had my twins and it made me reassess a bunch of things. And I woke up one morning and realized the thing that really motivated me about work was not cost per click, although that was going pretty well at Google, but it was boring. (laughs) That part was boring. What interested me was the team stuff, the team dynamics, how to set up a team, how to help people love each other and their work. And there wasn't a job where that was the day job at Google, but Steve Jobs at Apple had decided to throw away all their management training, start from a blank piece of paper. And one of my favorite business school professors had joined Apple University and he said, Kim, why don't you come and help us design managing at Apple? So I left Google and went to Apple for a couple of years. And then lo and behold, a friend of mine from Google became CEO of Twitter, Dick Costolo. And he said, why don't you come and helped me design managing at Twitter. And managing at Twitter looked almost exactly like managing at Apple. It was like the same basic things. And I wound up becoming Dick's CEO coach and coaching a lot of other great people and writing a book so that I could share the ideas with more than just a handful of people. And that became Radical Candor. And then I wrote another book called Just Work. and. That brings you up to speed. Here we are today talking about both of those books. Great. Thank you so much for that. And thinking about those high pressure environments you're working in and also the challenges that we face as working mums in such high pressure environments. Have you got any experiences that you'd like to share about how you manage that or like how you failed at that too? Because actually I'm so comfortable with failure to me. Behavior change is finding out what works. So it's got to have a lot of failure in there. So yeah, anything you'd like to share on the burnout motherhood topic in particular or why you didn't? Knowing what works. Part of that is knowing what doesn't work. Yes, many sort of 
bumps along the road. I remember when I was pregnant with the twins, my husband looked at me and he said, how are we going to do this? Because both of us have gotten where we've gotten in our careers by just working harder than anyone else. <laughs> we both wanted to be very present. And we just said to each other, we're going to have to learn a new way of working. And I don't know what it's going to look like, but we'll figure it out as we go along, often by failing. And there was, I remember there was one moment, because we had twins, it turned out to be more cost effective to have a nanny than to have the kids in daycare. And so we were lucky enough to have a wonderful nanny who's actually still with us to this day. Her mother got sick and she had to go to Mexico to be with her mother. And she told us at the last minute, because she wasn't expecting it to happen either. And I remember looking at Andy's, the name of my husband, and just thinking, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? Like, how is this going to work? And he said, maybe we should sell our house and move to Vermont. It was one of those moments. We did not sell our house and move to Vermont. But we struggled with it the next day. We used care.com. And this woman who my children didn't know, who was lovely, there was nothing wrong with her per se, except that they didn't know her. And I remember my son like clutching my leg and screaming. <laughs> and I thought, I guess I'm not going to work today. And there were a lot of bumps in the road, figuring it out, figuring out how to make it all work. I will say though, that there's one moment I remember in particular when at this point, I had a more flexible schedule because I was writing and doing radical candor consulting work. And I had picked the kids up at nursery school and I was driving them home and they were screaming at each other as kids usually do. And finally, I just got so mad. I pulled the car over, slammed on the brakes and I said, it is not safe for me to drive with you. I scared them to death. And I got out of the car and I walked around it three or four times and they were sobbing. And I got home and I had a call that I had to take. And I remember feeling, oh no, I wish I didn't have this call. I want to reassure them that I haven't lost it, but I had this call. So I took the call and I was talking to this person. And I remember both kids came up and sat on either side of me with their arms around me. They're like, thank God she's back. And I remember realizing that the call was like the best possible thing that could have happened because it gave me a chance to reassert my sort of in control professional self. And that was very reassuring <laughs> to the kids who thought I just totally lost it. Yes, I try to think about it in terms of work-life integration. It's not like work takes away from your life, and it's not like life takes away from your work. I think in some respects, part of what gave me the prompting and the courage to leave Google, I had this great job at Google, and it was hard to leave at the time. But part of what gave me the prompting was that I was frustrated and I felt like that frustration was like seeping out into my children and I didn't want that to happen. And leaving was what set me on a journey of getting what I really wanted out of my career. And I'm not sure I would have done that if I hadn't had kids. Life gives a lot to your work and work gives a lot to your life. 
that's fantastic a great story and I have created in the minivan that is the happy zone because I'm like I can't drive and have arguments at the same time <laughs> so I'm like not in this place when I can't escape you it's not gonna happen that's also our rule now too <laughs> And when we started a carpool and it didn't work, I did the side of the road. Like, stop. Do you want me to leave you here? Because this is the happy zone. <laughs> so we're being very radically candid with our children. So tell us more about it. What is radical candor and why is it so important? So radical candor is caring personally and challenging directly at the same time. It's a way to think about soliciting feedback from others, giving feedback, both praise and criticism, more praise than criticism to others, gauging how it's landing and encouraging it between others. And to me, it's the essence of good relationships at work and also good relationships in life. In fact, I wrote a novel, one of the novels I wrote that didn't get published, but it's a great novel, so you can read it anyway. It's called Virtual Love, and that book is about how what I was learning in the workplace was helping me get out of a bad romance and into a happy marriage. So there you go. And that made me think about love languages as well, because that was something that really helped my relationship with my husband. And I think that's what's the same about the radical candor is it's not about what you're saying. You describe it as how it's received. It's not what's coming out your mouth. It's how it's received in the other person's ears. And so it, as well with our love language, it's like, how do we want to be praised? How do we want to be recognized? And if you're doing it in the way that is your love language and it's not the other person's, then of course it's not received. Exactly. Exactly. That's the idea of radical canners. It doesn't get measured at the speaker's mouth, but it gets measured at the listener's ear. But of course, how do you know what's going on inside someone else's ear? That's the trick, isn't it? And that's why I like that exercise you describe about what is it you do need to stay centered and that you had done that exercise with your workplace. So maybe describe that particular situation for us, because I think it's a really important one where if we don't understand what's happening to people outside of their work lives, we can't organize our work lives to fit with that. Yes, exactly. I think one of the things that was really important to me as I became a manager was to understand what did I need to do to stay centered? What was my happiness recipe? And I learned about this when I was working at a consulting company and we were on a very intense project. And when we started the project, we said, what is it that everyone needs in order to stay centered so that we can enjoy this project and so that we don't burn out? And there was a guy on the project whose child was having to have brain surgery that summer. And he said, what I really need is to take a walk in daylight hours with my wife so that we can be together and talk about the things we need to talk about and just grieve together, frankly. And the child was okay in the end, thank goodness. But it was a stressful time for him and his wife, obviously. And so even though that consulting firm was notorious for 16, 18-hour days, we structured our work so that he could make sure that he got that walk with his wife in daylight hours. So it either had to happen in the morning, not too early, not before the sun came up, or at night before the sun went down. And... 
I think that it actually really helped me realize how important it is to take an extra beat. And I've worked with other teams who've written, what's your happiness recipe? And there was one guy who said what he needed to do every single day was to cook dinner and play music and dance while he cooked. I was like, why don't I do that? (laughs) So you get all kinds of great ideas from people about how to get more joy out of life. But it's also really important to really understand what other people need so that they can bring their best selves to work. Exactly. I think that's so important. And that was flexible work before flexible work was even there. But I think that's the thing. If we don't understand these things that are outside of our work life that are influencing how we turn up at work, then, you know, it's hard for us because a lot of people see these as that's your personal problem. It's not a work problem. But to me as a manager, when you understand all the different things that are affecting your employees' lives, you have more opportunities to support them. So to me, that's like a total shift of abundance mindset in your management versus, oh, you've got a problem, solve it yourself. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There's different people I've worked with at different times. There was one person who worked for me and he did incredible work, great work. But he needed to take two months off every year and go travel the world and take photographs. That was what he needed to do for his soul and what he needed to do to show up and do his very best work. I worked at a big company. It was hard to make HR understand that this was okay and why it was okay for him to do it, but not for everybody. Not everybody needed it. And so trying to create a one-size-fits-all vacation plan or something, it doesn't work that well. So then how did you come to write Just Work and what are your main recommendations from that book? Yeah, so after Radical Kinder came out, I did a lot of talks and workshops, particularly about feedback. And I was at a tech company in San Francisco and the CEO of that company had been a colleague of mine for the better part of a decade, a person I like and respect enormously and one of two few black women CEOs in tech. And when I finished giving the presentation, she pulled me aside and she said, Kim, I'm excited to roll out Radical Candor. I think it's gonna help me build the kind of culture I want, but I gotta tell you, it's much harder for me to roll it out than it is for you. And she went on to explain to me that as soon as she would offer even the most gentle, compassionate criticism to someone, she would get signed with the angry black woman stereotype. And I knew this was true, And I also realized a bunch of different things at the same time. The first was how often bias, prejudice, and bullying masquerade as feedback. Like, why had that happened to her? I also realized I hadn't really considered that as much as I should have when writing Radical Candor. I had breezed past it. The next thing I realized was that I had failed to be the kind of colleague that I imagined myself to be. I had failed to be, as I say, in just work an upstander. I had pretended that a whole host of things were not happening to her that were happening. I hadn't even noticed the extent to which she had to show up unfailingly cheerful and pleasant in every meeting we were ever in together, even though she had what to be ticked off about at work, as we all do from time to time. So that was another revelation. The third one was that I realized that not only had I been in denial about the things that were happening to her, 
I had also been in denial about the things that were happening to me as a white woman in the workplace. And hard for the author of a book called Radical Candor to admit I had been in denial, but I had been because I think I didn't want to think of myself as a victim. But even less than wanting to think of myself as a victim, did I want to think of myself as a culprit, as someone who had been biased, prejudiced, or bullied others. And yet, as my son's baseball coach says, you can't do right if you won't notice what you're doing wrong. <laughs> so I needed to come to grips with this. And then the last thing I realized was that even though I had imagined as a leader, I was creating these BS free zones, I had too often failed to create these BS free zones. I hadn't taken the steps that I could have taken as a leader to prevent bias, prejudice, and bullying from ruining collaboration and respect on the team. So that made me sit down and start writing another book. Exactly. And I think that's so important. I also had that experience of failing other women in academia because I would have a lot of young women come to me with the challenges that they were facing. And my answer was work harder because that was how I had survived. And it also was the same as your mentality. I succeeded because I worked harder than anybody around me. Again, that's what leads to burnout. But when I really had a reckoning of that that had been my response, but it also was that I hadn't really understood what we were up against. I think that's such a big part of this. It feels very invisible. It's not easy to exactly pinpoint what you're up against. And then if you don't have the data, like I remember asking for feedback from one of our leaders, because we were working on a very challenging project and having all sorts of problems. So I said, can I lead in a better way? And his response was, you're very aggressive. Now, I just took that as, okay, I am, maybe that's the case, right? But now if I had and then understood, okay, what proportion of people get, women get told that, get told that type of thing as personal feedback, when I was actually asking for professional feedback on how to manage this situation better, I would have been able to go, yes, maybe you perceive me as aggressive, but by the way, here's some facts around that. And could I please have some other advice? Yeah. And also the guy who you worked with, who got promoted, compare your aggression to his and get very specific. Let's just say Naval Officer MD. You could imagine. Yeah. Yeah. And yet he was not dinged for being aggressive. There's a great article that Kieran Snyder wrote about this called The Abrasive Problem, where she did linguistic analysis and found in performance reviews how often women get dinged for being aggressive or abrasive, whereas men get rewarded for the same behavior. So I really appreciated both those books. And so tell me a little bit now, having thought about, I see what you shared in those books is very much the ingredients. You have such great frameworks for them, really fantastic examples, lots and lots of examples of how to do it. So then now you're in workplaces and trying to roll these out, like you gave the example of your female colleague who was black, who was trying to roll this out. What are your experiences of rolling these two programs and advice out in workplaces and what's working and what are typical challenges? So radical candor, when it works well, it tends to work because people, I think, have adopted a shared vocabulary. A couple of HR leaders said, we have to include radical candor in our manager training because our employees demand that we do. 
like enough people had read the book and wanted it. It's a mystery to me what takes off in the world and what doesn't. So radical candor took off as an idea and we've had a lot of success rolling the ideas out. I'll share some failures as well. I've gotten some criticism and I bet you have some advice on this particular bit of criticism. But one bit of criticism that we've had is that it sounds so much easier than it is actually. Mm. We go to the talk and we say, yes, we're gonna solicit feedback. And then we do it a couple of times and then we don't change our behavior. So we love the idea, but we're not sure about the behavior change. And I bet you can give me some advice on the behavior change side of things. And I definitely find that a challenging juxtaposition because behavior change is hard and nobody wants to hear that because they all want the instant gratification, easy solution. (laughs) They want an app actually. And in fact, I built an app and that did not work at all. The talks and the workshops do work pretty well, I think, but they want to gamify it. And this is not a game. It's real. And again, having worked for all sorts of apps, I've helped app companies with behavior change. Again, what we lack in the apps is the engagement with the app. So again, if you actually use these things, all of them work the same way. If you use Radical Candor, it works. But the issue is we don't use it. And so I think that's the thing. Some of this is about creating habits. So I think one place is to also say, what are the conditions that already exist in the workplace to make this happen? So for example, if you don't have psychological safety, you can't bring radical candor in and expect it to succeed because if there isn't trust and okay to have mistakes and okay to give feedback, then that situation is challenging. And actually it's the same conditions that we need for change. If you're burnt out, if you haven't got a growth mindset, and if it's not safe, then those are all conditions that won't help you change. But they're also the conditions that you need for radical candor. Yeah, it's a catch-22. Actually, Amy Edmondson and I just wrote an article together. Amy Edmondson is a professor at Harvard Business School who writes a lot about psychological safety. And we both agree that Radical candor is never really going to feel comfortable, and it really is never actually going to feel that safe. And psychological safety doesn't mean you're comfortable all the time or that nobody's ever telling you what you're doing wrong. In fact, if you think about it, we've all been in situations in our life, especially at work, where we know something's not quite right, but nobody is telling us what it is. And you feel like in that situation, like a dead man walking or a dead woman walking. And that doesn't feel safe. That doesn't feel good at all. In fact, Claude Steele in his book, Whistling Vivaldi, writes about being the only black person in his PhD program. And he said the thing that made him feel safe, or if not exactly safe, the thing that helped him get through that difficult situation was getting real feedback on his work from his academic advisor so that he understood where the bar was and how he was going to clear that bar. And I think it's so important if you're a leader in particular with soliciting feedback. So that's why one of the tactics when I do a workshop is I say, when you have a one-on-one with your employees, and if you're a manager, I believe you should have a one-on-one with each employee every week. And that means don't have too many employees, by the way. (laughs) You shouldn't spend all your time in one-on-ones. 
but mostly the one-on-one is your employee's agenda, but save five minutes at the end to solicit feedback. Cause I think the most important thing that a leader can do is to lay their power down, solicit the feedback and then reward the candor when they get it so that they get more of it. And I think it's also the employee's obligation. I actually spoke at West Point recently about if you are a good follower, your number one goal is to speak truth to power, to be willing to speak truth to power. But it's not really fair to tell the followers to speak truth to power if you're not also telling the leaders to not chop off their heads for speaking truth to power. Exactly. And I think some of the keys there that you're talking about and that you do use in your work is the cues. For example, in Just Work, you you talk about a purple flag. Like you say, having always setting aside five minutes at the end of an agenda to solicit that feedback. I used to have a piece of paper on my door, the inside of my door. So before someone left my office, they would see a sign saying, please give me feedback. What else can I do to help? So those are the things, because again, if it's not a regular habit, those are the things that we forget. We simply forget to do it because it's not reminded. So again, other ways to build habits are to associate them, anchor them with another behavior. So if you are always doing it in like a one-to-one, then you always know there's my behavior. The one-to-one is the behavior that cues me asking for feedback or the person leaving the door. Oh yeah, they don't leave the door before I get feedback sort of thing. So that helps, those are cues that remind us. And that's why I love the sort of purple flag cue that you use in Just Work to agree upon, okay, I'm going to do my upstanding and interrupt bias here, but here's a cue to get everybody on the same page so we're ready for this interruption sort of thing. So one of the things that I recommend in radical candor, I say praise in public, criticize in private, but in just work, there's an exception to that. And it's like a correction. Correction needs to be in public and correcting bias needs to happen in public. But that is very, it's, it's uncomfortable enough to give someone feedback about spinach in their teeth or saying I'm too much. It's really uncomfortable to give people feedback that they've said or done something biased. And it's super duper uncomfortable to do it in public. But I really think if we're going to change these patterns, that's what we've got to do. So in order to, I'm not going to say make it feel comfortable because it won't, but the only way out is through. So the way to move through that discomfort is a three-step process. The first step is to come up with a shared vocabulary. What's the word or phrase that your team will use in order to point out bias when it has made itself manifest in a meeting, which it does in every meeting, every at every company, every day. And I like purple flag. So I have this purple flag and I'll say purple flag, I'll wave the purple flag if we're on video. And then the rest of my team knows, oh, something was biased. There was bias just there. And sometimes I'm waving it at myself and I'll point out, and sometimes I'll wave it at something someone else said, which brings us to the second part of bias disruption, because not only is a shared vocabulary important, it's also really important to have a shared norm for how to respond when it's you whose bias is being flagged, because we're all going to get, we all have biases, hundred percent of people have biases. And so I should never say hundred percent. I'll put it this way. I can categorically say I've never met anyone who doesn't have biases. So anyway, the norm on how to respond is first of all, thank you for pointing it out. And then either I get it, I'll work on not doing it again, 
or I don't get it. And that second thing is really hard to say, because if someone disrupts my bias, and I know I've said or done something that's biased, but I don't even know what I did wrong, now I'm doubly ashamed. I'm ashamed because I've harmed someone, and I'm ashamed because I'm ignorant. And helping people move through that shame so that they can disengage the, the sort of fight or flight response which tends to come with shame and re-engage their executive function and respond well is really important. And then the third part of disrupting bias is you need to take a second at the end of every meeting or more than a second, at least 30 seconds at the end of every meeting to, to say, did we disrupt bias in this meeting? Did we not notice it? Let's take a minute to think about what was said or done. Or did someone notice something, but they didn't wave the purple flag because we're not in the habit of it. And I think that shared commitment is really important for changing behavior, for building the habit. But what do you think of that? Oh, yes, absolutely. Because we have to keep each other accountable, for sure. We need accountability throughout, but we also need the support. So we need the support, say, for example, if you haven't got those agreements yet, that you basically say to one of your colleagues, okay, today in this meeting, I'm going to stand up and do this thing. Make sure you've got my back. So I think that's the thing. The discomfort and the fear that you describe are real. And these are the reasons why we don't change our behavior, because the risk seems too high. And so that stops us changing our behavior. So instead of saying that's not important, we have to understand that fear and that shame so that we can then give people the skills they need. Because again, most people think behavior change is about the knowledge. Okay, now you know you're biased, you will stop being biased. No, you need the skills. Like with your arms, you need the skills to stop doing the thing. It takes time. And if you don't get the chance to practice that in small, safe ways, it can just be too much in these public meetings to do it. Yes, absolutely. And I think the radical candor is in today's environment, even more rare than I think it was when I wrote the book back in 2017. And I think part of it is that we have all but not all, again, I sound so categorical, but there's more awareness of bias, prejudice, and bullying, which is good, but there's such fear around these topics. Fear up, down, and sideways, fear no matter what your role, whether you're the person who said or did the bias, prejudice, or bullying thing, whether you were harmed by it, whether you're the upstander, whether you're the leader, people are afraid, and very often, and increasingly more and more, I get feedback that, I'm not going to give feedback because I'll get accused of being racist or sexist. And now all of a sudden the person is doing the racist or sexist thing because they're giving feedback <laughs> to the people who look like them and then they're not giving feedback. And then they're like, that's an abrogation of responsibility as a leader. It's your job to give everybody feedback. I believe that the best way to move through that is to start to point out the small things and to point them out in public and to point them out together and to have a shared commitment and a shared compassion for one another that yes, we have these bad patterns in our thinking and our speech, but we can change those patterns if we commit to doing it together. 
Exactly. And this is the thing. Lots of people think about change and they get stuck on, first, I have to change myself. And I agree. I like your soliciting feedback. The way I say it is, first, you role model. Because this is not about fixing you first. Because if you have that mentality, then you have to be perfect before you change anyone else. And we get stuck there. So that's definitely that important part. But also then we learn best together. Social learning is the best type of learning because we have role modeling, we have social comparison, we have imitation, we have wanting to do it right because then we get positive reinforcement from everyone else. So that's why all these change things should not be done in isolation. So when we go, let's only do what we can control and I can't control other people, that's what I think is so important feedback and these things are not done in a vacuum. Social learning is the best way for us to learn. And so I agree, that's where it needs to be done. And then I think we also assume change happens in this big jump, but actually change is a series of tiny experiments. So again, you tried the the purple flag, say it doesn't work. You tried agreements, it doesn't work. That's all you're doing is you're saying, let's try something together as a team And let's then evaluate whether it's working. And then if it doesn't, hey, it'll all come up with new ideas. And now we've got something to come from. We tried something, it didn't work. How do we change it? So that design of planning, acting, and then continually adapting. That's how behavior change happens in organizations, essentially. And that's what I think, again, it's that we need to experiment and be okay with the failure because that is us learning. And that is what I think is really dangerous right now is people are so afraid to fail when it comes to talking about bias, prejudice, and bullying that they won't say anything. And then the biases, the prejudices, and the bullying deepen. So I really hope we can change it. But I'm really curious. You mentioned to me that maybe you tried some radical candor practices and it didn't work. And then you had some thoughts on what would have made it work. So I would love to get some radical candor on radical candor. What worked, what didn't work and what could work better? Yeah, so I approached it somewhat in the same way of thinking about like, how can I cue this for myself? Because I knew that I would forget. But I was in this situation where I was in many meetings. And I think, again, the structure of academia is quite different from business. And when I realized this afterwards, having burnt out myself and left academia, my first goal was, okay, how could I have been a better manager? And everything I read was about when you're a manager, you are no longer an expert in your area. You are just managing your people. But actually, I was never evaluated on how I manage my people. I was evaluated on my own productivity, my own career. So I had to keep that going while also trying to develop a team. So I think that was a challenging situation. That, by the way, is true in every business I've ever. (laughs) It's true for salespeople. It's true for engineers. It's true for lawyers. It's true for consultants. It's like, it's just true, unfortunately. So that makes it really challenging. So the thing then, again, I didn't have enough time to give the praise, the three times praise that I want to do. So I asked my managers to basically each week select somebody that they wanted to praise to me in an email so that I could then respond and say thank you to that person. Because what they saw is that I could give them so much more perspective on the impact it was having. So we started that practice, but again, we just didn't schedule it into a calendar to actually do. And I think part of it too was I wasn't sure. For me, it was fantastic. I loved it because I got to connect with the employees, even if it was over email, but I got to give them more purpose. And I was just got a chance to say thank you, which wasn't happening in my everyday life. 
but I'm not sure the managers valued it in the same way. So this was me constantly having to ask them. It became like another task for them as opposed to something they wanted to do. Exactly. So I feel like even though we had talked about all the different things we wanted to do, like we selected the career conversations, we selected three times praise, and we selected soliciting feedback. Those were the things we tried to integrate. But I think it was just those habits. Like we didn't keep each other accountable to it. We didn't set reminders. And again, I think that's the biggest thing that I've also learned about behavior change. It needs so much more support than we ever think. We need so much more praise. Like you say, three times praise. We need the positive reinforcement. We need the rewards to do it. And yeah, we didn't build in those pieces. I think that's the challenging thing. It can be really hard for people to change. And to be honest, what I usually do is it's all the things that happen once you've set a goal. It's all the tracking, accountability, support, overcoming barriers. That's the biggest thing too, because things are going to get in the way. But if you can really think about what those potentially are in advance, because that's the same as trying to read the person you're giving feedback to, right? You're trying to predict what their ears are going to hear. And don't try to predict, try to just recognize after the fact, because trying to predict, you'll quit listening. So I want to offer a couple of suggestions that have worked for others and tell me if this fits in with what you know about behavior change. So one of the things that I have done is encouraged people, especially managers, but everyone, to think about a time when they got some feedback that maybe stung a little bit in the moment, but stood them in good stead for the next 5, 10, 15 years. And so in the book, Radical Candor, I tell a story about a time when my boss told me at the end of a meeting that I thought had gone really well that I said um too much in the meeting. And I hated hearing that. And she had to actually say it to me three different times before I finally heard her. So she had to keep going out on the challenge directly dimension of Radical Candor. But once she finally got through to me and I went to visit the speech coach, I learned a lot and it helped me for the rest of my career enormously. And so thinking about that story and getting people to tell each other stories has helped a lot of people remember that when they're soliciting feedback, they're doing it not only to model, but also because they're going to get some information that is valuable. Like remembering that the feedback, especially critical feedback, is really valued. That's what we crave to get. And getting people to really genuinely want to solicit the feedback because they think it's going to help them it has been. And storytelling is actually very helpful. I love storytelling, but I don't know. It seems abstract to people. What do you think about that idea? I think it's so important. Both of us have worked in technology and I used to meet the head of the California Institute for Telecommunications and Technology at UCSD in the hallways. Actually, we were stair walkers and he would always show me the latest gadget they'd been working on. And he'd say, this is going to change everyone. This data is going to change everyone. And I would just say to him, okay, let me know when it does. And then eventually he came back to me a few months later and go, the data isn't changing anyone. I said, no, because we need more than data. And I think we need stories. That's actually such an important part. When I did work with policymakers, we would have our data arguments. They knew what we were saying was grounded in research, but it was about the stories from their constituents that changed things. 
So I absolutely agree that stories also lead to that empathy that we need as leaders to change. So when we're thinking about <clears throat> the situation of employees in our organization and what their stories are and what they're actually going through, again, until you hear the story of the man whose daughter is going through brain surgery, right? That's what changes how you feel about it. To, to say 50% of our employees are doing this, that has no response. And so I agree, stories are really important. And also, in the behavior change process, we do have this phase when you're moving through these different groups. So there's pre-contemplators where your message is not reaching them at all. In fact, it has such cognitive dissonance, they've gone. Then you have the contemplators who are really debating. And those people need more pros than cons. So that's totally when you're trying to get them to think of the benefits. And then you get to the action phase of people and they need the skills. They're ready, they're committed to this, but they just don't know how to go forward in the way you went and had your speech coaching. Again, people can learn to have active listening, conflict resolution skills. So much of this is about skills and not these one-time trainings. It's about then, okay, I've got these skills. How do I bring them back into the workplace? How do I practice them in situations where I'm getting more and more comfortable, where I'm getting feedback on whether I've got it how was my active listening? Yeah, you need feedback on your feedback, which like if people don't want feedback, they really don't want feedback on their feedback. <laughs> and that's tricky. So a couple of things that I've done to try to help there, some of which worked better than others. But one of the things that I did was to build this app. And basically the first version of it wasn't actually an app. It was just a magnet board with little balls that you could move around. And so when people would leave my office, then they could mark how they found the conversation. Did they find me radically candid? Did they find me obnoxiously aggressive? And people really loved that and other people really didn't. But that's like your sign on your door, do, do you have any feedback from me? Now, of course, it's a little bit trickier even now because we're so rarely in person at work. So here's an idea. You can tell me, is this a good or a bad behavior change? Support. So you've offered the framework. You've read my stories. You've had your team tell their stories. Because I think it's not my stories that matter. The people who are working together, they have shared their stories. So now their brains are on the same wavelength. They've got the data. So now are they going to do it? Are they actually going to do it? So what if we had a little virtual, remember that game Simon says it had four different buttons. So you're in the meeting and you're gauging not each other, but the meeting and people will tap radical candor. This has a possibility of becoming obnoxiously aggressive, but it could be funny to see where is the conversation going? Are we really saying what we really think? What do you think as a support? Like what are some supports that we could give people in the moment? Because when I was building these apps, I viewed them as almost like this little homunculus on people's shoulder to say, be more radically candid. But the problem is that was creepy. <laughs> <laughs> I think gamification works for some, like you can have like a bingo sheet and you're trying to get to, yes, did we get these things? That definitely works for some people and some behaviors. I think for particularly these types of behaviors, because you're doing your job 
and you're not necessarily listening for the bias or the candor. You're just having a discussion. So, you know, folks like Minda Hartz have suggested you have a somebody whose job is to be the bias monitor. So they're focusedly, they're actually listening to it. And then again, you can have that tracking system. So today, when we started with the bias monitor, who's specifically trained to do this task, right? Let's not assume that we can spot that and do our other job, right? It takes somebody's job to do it. And then you're tracking, okay, in the first month, on average, we were having major bias incidents 10 times a week, and now we're down to two. So again, it's that progress. We've identified one bias, and now we've identified another. So it's not really that you're, I think... Oh, you're challenging the even harder ones now, right? We've moved up. Yeah. It's almost like if you're weeding a garden, like you'll get rid of one weed and then another kind of weed will have opportunity to come up and then eventually you get them. But I would not want people to get discouraged because there are new biases that crop up. Like that should be expected. And they change all the time, right? So new ones come up that we need to start paying attention to. But I think those types of things, being able to see progress, and you have data dashboards for your projects that you do, but it's the data dashboards that we need to see progress for our change efforts too. And then people get that feedback. They see where the gaps are. They see where they're doing well as well on things. So that's the feedback loop. Yes, exactly. Because one of the problems with the early app I built, I think, is that I had skipped the put your phone away in your pocket, look each other in the eye and have a real conversation. And I think that's what we're missing. We need to like talk to each other again. We need to have real conversations again. And also listen back to them. I think that's really the beauty of recordings. And I have experienced that in coaching when I'm receiving coaching and a coach sends me the recording of the conversation and I hear what I've said. My goodness, I hear it differently. Like I have so much self-compassion when I hear myself saying some of the things I say. So I think there's great promise in actually that type of feedback as well, because we would do that for case management of coaches that we would be having delivering our interventions. We would listen back to the conversation that they had with a client and be able to then have this discussion with, with something different. So I know you have to go and go get the kids. But any last words just to leave people with encouragement? And I've so loved this conversation. I have loved it too. So I would encourage people to end the default to silence. Go forth, solicit some feedback. If everybody just can write down what's the question that they're going to ask, what could I do or stop doing that would make it easier to work with me? Who are you going to ask it of and when are you going to ask it? Those are implementation intentions. Yeah, see, I learned something. Then our time today will be very well spent. And don't let bias, prejudice, and bullying masquerade as feedback. So if what you get feels off to you, like it's okay to separate the wheat from the chaff. Not all feedback you have to agree with. You can disagree with it. Thanks so much for listening today. I hope the podcast brings you fresh ideas, renewed confidence and energy to keep leading change. If you need a partner in these efforts, I can help you effectively build a thriving workplace culture for all. I'll help you overcome the real barriers to change you face every day 
and help you lead real change with evidence-based solutions. In particular, I want to work with passionate leaders who have tried and failed. Because I know you have what it takes and your experience will help you clearly recognize the difference I can make. For a free consultation today, please visit my website at www.leading-real-change.com. That's www.leadingrealchange.com. Close your eyes, feel the power 